Our sermon text for today is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. Ecclesiastes 1, 4 through 11. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been, been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. In the 1983 movie Groundhog Day, we meet a frustrated and disappointed weather reporter called Phil Connors, not to be confused with our own Phil, played by Bill Murray. Phil was assigned the task of reporting on Groundhog Day in Poxwatoonee, Pennsylvania. He does so haphazardly, clearly despising his work and his assignments. But surprisingly, Phil finds himself in a perennial loop where the day February 2nd repeats over and over again and if Phil's patience was already short, this only aggravated him further and further. Realizing that his actions had no future consequences because he got to live the same day over and over again, Phil started living for self. He started living for pleasure he completely embraced hedonism, and eventually he found himself completely without hope. But Phil falls in love with a woman, a woman that he meets for the first time every day, Rita. And he starts to realize that the time he has does not have to be lived for self. But it could be used for the good of others. So Phil devotes himself to growth and service of others. And when he does, the, the loop is broken. And he finds himself free. Groundhog Day is by no means a Christian movie. And it does not carry a Christian message. But it does cause us to think about the cycles of life, doesn't it? it? It does help us think of this life that starts 
anew every day. So, I wonder, what would you do if you were stuck in a time loop and your actions were completely disconnected from eternal consequences or from eternity? What if you could do whatever you want every day and start over again without suffering the consequences for your actions? You see, what we do here, right, how we answer this question reveals the reality of our hearts, right? Would you live for self or would you use this repeated day so that you could glorify God over and over and over again? We may not be stuck in a time loop, but we are certainly bound to life's cycles. And the cycles of life, of life are opportunities we have to accomplish either our own earthly purposes or God's eternal purposes. You heard this read earlier in the, in the service, Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. These are cycles. They're not loops, but they are cycles. And we naturally don't know how to use our days wisely. This is why the psalmist says, teach me. Teach me how to use my day. We need to come before the Lord and we need to, like the psalmist, say, Lord, we need you to teach us how to leverage our cycles, our days, our lives for the glory of your name. Last week we started this series through Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is part of a compilation of books in the Bible that are called Wisdom Literature. They're, these books are not so much designed to teach us doctrine, though they do, but they're designed to help us know how to live our lives wisely, how to live our lives well. So these books are books filled with application for everyday life. We're going to spend 11 weeks in Ecclesiastes. As I said uh, last week, Ecclesiastes is a sermon by a king who calls himself the preacher. And the preacher seeks to impart wisdom in the hearts of his audience. The, the preacher not only has great wisdom and knowledge, the preacher has experienced life. So he teaches because he wants us to learn, but he teaches because he also wants to share with us his testimony. So, for the next 10 weeks, we are looking for the wisdom of the preacher. I told you last week that sermons, expository sermons, are designed to help you read your Bible better, right? So, I, my hope is that today you'll be able to go home and read these verses from Ecclesiastes, and you'll be able to say, I understand it better. 
I understand it more. I hope you don't go home and say, Pastor Lucas, I don't know where you got this from, but it was pretty cool. Right? That's not the point. The point is the preacher ought to preach the text with humility and simplicity so that the, the congregation, the hearer, is able to understand it better. And here is my desire. Okay, At the end of 11 weeks, my desire is that you will read through Ecclesiastes and you will see Christ in it. That's my desire. Remember also that we said last week that the, the preacher wants to get across his point very clearly. And what is his point? His point is that all is vanity under the sun. We said that vanity is a word that, that causes us to think of something that is frustrating and elusive. Right? Uh, and the preacher says that everything that is under the sun is vanity. Habel. But we also said that under the sun is not all that there is. There is life over the sun. And we take heart in knowing that nothing is new under the sun because we can also know that nothing is new over the sun. We worship a God who never changes. And so when life drives us to despair, we look over the sun and we trust in God. God is eternal. And if eternity exists, then not everything is vain. I said last week that Ecclesiastes underemphasizes eternity. And I said that I believe the preacher does this on purpose. Because the preacher wants us to say there has to be more to life than this. The preacher says, right, fear God and obey his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. And that is true, a beautiful conclusion to the book. But there is more than duty to the Christian life. There is joy and there is delight. So today we're going to see just this. We're going to see that the natural cycles of life, and in the natural cycles of life, we are often tempted to be vexed, bored, discouraged. But we'll also consider that keeping eternity in our hearts will help us find purpose and will help us leverage our cycles, the cycles of our life for the glory of God. So today we have two points. We're going to consider the endless cycles of nature and then we'll consider the endless cycles of men. So first consider the endless cycles of nature. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 is the beginning of an answer to a question that was asked last week. The preacher proposed at the end of our text last week, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The preacher is asking the question, What do we get from working hard in life? What, what do we get from putting our hours into work? What do we get from doing homework? What do we get from doing chores? What do we get from spiritual disciplines? And if this were not a rhetorical question, 
in other words, a question that is designed to teach, it would be a bad question. But it's a question that we often ask. What do I get out of it? Is this worth my time? We, we live in a society that is driven by profit. So we, we leverage our relationships, right? Uh, so that they can advance our schedule or our agenda. Uh, we, we leverage our religion so that it can advance our agenda. We, we leverage all things so that we can answer the question in a good way, what do we gain? What do we profit? We ask this of work relationships. We ask this of church. We ask this of marriage. We ask this of parenting. But the answer of the preacher is disheartening. What do we gain from working so hard in life? He says, a generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. In other words, he's saying, we're not that important. We're not that important to be asking this question. We don't bring much value to the things that we should be concerned or demanding of, uh, with the profit we make. In other words, we shouldn't pridefully overestimate how much value we bring to the table. What do we gain? We are here today and gone tomorrow. Why do we care? We should know our limitations, our shortcomings. We should know our weaknesses. Listen to Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace of God, for the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Right? You know, the Bible never tells us that we should have higher self-esteem than we have. Never says that. In, in, in the contrary, the Bible tells us that we should esteem ourselves less and others more. So we shouldn't, right, think of, him, of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. And what is the sober judgment? Recognizing that if we have anything good, it has been given to us by God. Listen, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. The Bible describes us like grass. The Bible describes us like mist. In other words, we are just Habel. We're here today and gone tomorrow. And yet so often we feel entitled, don't we? We feel, we feel entitled to good services at a restaurant, right? And if we don't get it, forget about grace. We feel entitled to driving in perfect traffic. And if someone dares to even cause us to tap our brakes, they will hear from us. I feel entitled to rest that my children do not afford me. But our sense of entitlement does not match our greatness. We're here today and gone tomorrow. But notice the contrast. The, the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, we're not that important. But he says, nature is... That's a little puzzling. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Now, yes, the earth will remain forever. We often talk about the end of the earth. Well, sure, there will be an end, but there will be a new beginning. God's plan for the earth is to renew the earth for all of eternity. 
We often talk about we'll spend eternity in heaven. That's good. It's fine. But the Bible prefers to refer to the eternal state as the new heaven and the new earth. We often forget about the role that this current earth will play in God's eternal plans. Friends, this creation is good and it will remain. God's plan is to establish a new heaven and a new earth that will remain forever. But this is not really even the point that the preacher is making here. The point that the preacher is making is that the cycles of our lives are insignificant in comparison to the cycles of nature. We live in one generation and then we die. The cycle of our lives and, but when we die, nature will remain. I was driving through New Orleans a few months ago with uh, some, some folks from our church as we went to the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, we, uh, we saw these beautiful French-style uh, tombs that are above ground. And, and a friend explained to me that what they do is they bury people in those tombs and as their bodies decompose they will flatten the place where that body is and they will put another body in that tomb and some of these tombs will have seven or eight people buried and and that just reminded me a tomb will last for seven or eight generations but we won't we really are not that significant the cycle of our lives end. I love watching stars, stargazing at night. It's something that I sometimes do with Boaz. And when I do, I often think, these are the same stars that Abraham looked up and saw the promise of God. Abraham is long gone, and yet the stars are still there. Many Generations have come and gone, but the constellations remain the same. So the preacher uses three examples from nature here in verses 5 through 7 to remind us of much more significant cycles, the, the nature cycles in comparison to our cycles. Look at verse 5. How long has the sun been rising and setting for? It rises and sets, and next day, it does it again. And it has done that since creation. In verse 6, how long has the wind blown for? It blows south, then it blows north, it goes around and around, and then it does it again. And it's been doing that since creation. The streams run to the sea, but the sea is never full, so they keep running to the sea. And it's been doing that since creation. But why? Why does creation seem to have a greater perseverance in fulfilling its purpose than men? Men is the crown of creation. We are of greater importance. When God created the earth, it wasn't until He created men that He declared it to be very good. So why does the sun, why does the wind, why do the rivers seem to have an advantage over men when it comes to their cycles? Why does creation stand forever, but man only lasts one generation? 
The answer is because of sin. Because of sin. God created us to never die. But sin introduced death. Sin brought about a curse to the created order, and it deeply affects man's ability to live with purpose. Genesis 1.28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Do you see how man is over creation? Man was created to rule the earth. Adam was placed in the garden, in the garden of Eden, to rule over the garden like a king. But Adam failed to subdue the earth. He instead pursued the desires of his own flesh. He rejected that which was eternal and embraced that which was temporal. So now the men of dust, who was made to live forever, experiences death and returns to dust. So the earth stands forever. But man is plagued with death. This is what the apostle said. Listen to what the apostle says in Romans 8, 20 and 21. For the creation was subject to futility. By the way, this word would be the translation of our Havel word. Okay? So this could be translated as, For the creation was subject to vanity, to nothingness, to meaninglessness. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, that's God. So yes, the sun rises, but the sun also dries. The sun also burns. The wind blows, but it also becomes hurricanes and becomes tornadoes. The rivers run, but they also flood. They destroy. The end, the, the, the earth stands forever, but today it stands in futility. In vanity, in Havel. This is a beautiful, wonderful, broken world. This is a world that today is still under a curse, and yet it cycles, in its cycles, it still brings glory to God. This is a world that's still under a curse, but it's not a world that is void of hope. In hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Earthquake, earthquakes, hurricanes, floods. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You know what this verse is saying? This verse is saying that the hope of creation rests in the redemption of the children of God. In other words, creation will not accomplish its purposes until its own, with its own cycles. Creation will not ultimately be able to honor and glorify God by itself. Creation is a curse because of the sin of the first Adam, and creation will be set free from its sin or from its curse once redemption of the second Adam, that is Christ, is complete. The problem creation faces cannot be resolved through environmentalism, activism, governmental restrictions. Since creation is in bondage because of sin, it can only be set free from its bondage through the gospel. I am not speaking against good stewardship of the earth. I fully believe in that. 
but that is not where our hope lies. Our hope lies in the renewed earth that will be brought about by the return of Christ. Jesus is redeeming creation. And this redemption will only be complete once all of the children of God turn to Him in faith and repentance. So the best environmental activism you can render is to believe and proclaim the gospel. We must turn to the God of creation and recognize before Him that our sins have caused the brokenness and the corruption, the vanity of this world. We must believe that the reconciliation of all things is only possible because of Jesus' death. Jesus is reconciling all things on earth, above the earth, and under the earth through His cross. Colossians 1.20 And His resurrection is the first fruit of the new creation to come. Friends, give it enough time. There will be enough tomb, tomb, tombs on earth for all of us. But Jesus' tomb is empty. Why? Because Jesus' body already experiences the new creation. And if Jesus resurrected from the dead, so will we. And if Jesus rose from the dead, so will this earth be renewed. So much of environmentalism in our days is about blaming others for the troubles of this world. So much of it is a byproduct of pride. But the gospel does not promote pride. It humbles us. We're reminded that we are part of the problem. And only Christ pro pro provides the solution. I, I believe that good stewards of this earth will be responsible with the resources that God has provided them. But they will ultimately believe that the hope that this earth needs is Christ. In Christ alone. I want to say two things in the way of application before, before we go to our second point. First, if creation depends on the redemption of man to experience its own redemption, right? So creation will be redeemed when man is redeemed. This means that man is primary and creation is secondary. In other words, creation was made to serve men and not men creation. This means that we're not intruders here. We're not intruders in, on this earth. We may cause problems, but we're not the problem. Friends, Mother Earth does not exist. God called us to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill this earth. Therefore, we're not the problem. More of us is the solution. In the 80s, China was concerned with overpopulation, so established a one-child-only policy. Today, China's greatest problem is population decline. If they had only read the Bible, they would have avoided this. As Christians, we must be great stewards of this planet, but we must understand stewardship from a biblical perspective. We're called to rule over this earth. We're called to fill this earth with the glory of God and not glorify creation, and not idolize the created order. Second, the cycles of creation are an evidence of God's grace towards us. Imagine life 
without natural cycles. One day lasts 24 hours, the next, next day lasts 72. One day gravity is on, the next day gravity is off. One day the sun decides to rise, the next day the sun takes a day off. It doesn't happen that way, does it? Nature is intelligible. Nature is predictable. And nature can be understood. So sometimes when we're dealing with the monotony and the challenges of a life that feels vain, we need to be reminded. The cycles of nature help us find rhythms for our own lives. So, so, Instead of looking at cycles and begrudgingly go through them, we can remember that a day is an opportunity for us to live for the glory of God. We, we can, instead, of, instead, of be, instead of rejecting right, that which God designed to take place, we can look at these things as God's own provision for our needs. So because there are nature cycles, because nature functions cyclically, our cycles can be organized and geared towards God's purposes. So now let's consider my second point, the endless cycle of man. When we come to verse 8, the preacher changes his gear a little bit. He becomes a little darker, a little more hopeless. He just describes the, the cycles of nature first. But now, he says, all things are full of weariness. So as he looks back at the monotonous cycles of nature, he concludes that life is exhausting, laborsome, difficult. Why? Because you... Invest yourself in so many things, and very often over and over and over again, and the things of nature never really satisfy. In verse 8, we're told that our senses are never satisfied. I remember when I was in elementary school, I became highly interested in this Japanese cartoon called Knights of the Zodiac. It would come out every night at 6.15 p.m., Monday through Friday, I would watch it. One episode a day, each day 30 minutes. Once the episode was done, I would wait 24 hours, and I would watch another episode. This is not how people watch shows anymore, right? Today, that's not how we watch shows. If we like a show, we binge watch the show. We spend the whole day watching episode after episode, and yet after watching hours and hours and hours of a show, we're still not satisfied. We want more. There's even a term for the dissatisfaction one finds after binge-watching a show and finishing it. Once a show is done and we wish it would last longer, we go into the show hole. One website describes the show hole as that empty feeling you get when you finish binge-watching a series 
And now you feel like your life has no meaning. Is the message of Ecclesiastes relevant or what? The eyes are not satisfied what it's, with what it sees. But it's not just shows, is it? It's not just TV. We live in an age where pornography is so easily accessed. The common, a common sense media report affirms that kids on average are first exposed to pornography at age 12. That's the average. This is troubling. How will these eyes ever be satisfied? There are more podcasts that we can count, more audiobooks than we can probably listen for the rest of our lives. You can watch news all day. And they say the same thing over and over again. And yet, we watch them all day. The same breaking news over and over. And the years are never satisfied. But not only are our senses never satisfied, our experiences are never new. They're vexing. We experience that which has already happened before. We think we have new and fresh experiences in life. We think of ourselves as creative, but look at verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. The young are often convinced that their ideas are revolutionary, but you don't have to look very far back in history to understand that revolution is just a reoccurring event. The times reveal that old ideas are often simply repackaged and rebranded. Youthful passion can be very helpful, but maturity is always necessary. I often tell college students that you must have your thought life primarily within the context of the local church. Do not pursue avenues of thoughts apart from those who are guiding you spiritually. If you're being challenged to think a certain way by your professors, by your peers, talk to your pastor about it. Talk to your deacon about it. Talk to people who are mentoring you in church. You know why? Because chances are they've gone through that thought process too. Do not create a dichotomy between the school and the sanctuary. Do not create a dichotomy between the professor and the priest. Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. College students, college is a place where your mind must be guarded. Do not go to college thinking that every professor has good intentions with what they're teaching. Guard your hearts, but guard your mind as well. Allow the church to be a place of great intellectual development for you. And seek to understand the world not through the lenses of existentialism, of secularism, of materialism. Seek to understand the world through the lenses of the Word of God. Nothing is new under the sun. We can certainly transform things, 
we can't, but we cannot create something that is not already, that does not already exist. I think we see this very clearly with the issue of transgenderism in our day. Look, it's a new person. Biology would say otherwise. It's not new. It's the same person, simply presented in a different way. Nothing is new under the sun. So we must be careful so that we're not always seeking what is new. Thinking that that is the right way. Not always seeking what is fresh. Because novelty, according to Ecclesiastes, is an illusion. We must instead be rooted and grounded. Paul says that we should grow in our Christ-likeness. Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine or teaching, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Finally, Ecclesiastes tells us that not only our experience is never new, but our legacy is not lasting. Ecclesiastes tells us that our legacy is not lasting. Look at verse 11. We're told that there's no remembrance of former things, nor will be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. I love what one of my friends told me. I've told you this before. Um, told me before I came to this church. Um, he quoted the Count of Zizendorf and he said, Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's the rhythm of life. History books mention very few people. And friends, the ch chances are you and I are not going to be in them. But the gospel we proclaim can last forever. Remember that this is a king speaking. And for a king, there is nothing more important than legacy. Offspring. And yet he says that the things of the past are forgotten and the things of the present will be forgotten. So what is the point of our lives? What is the purpose of our existence? Well, the first answer is we must ultimately not look for purpose and meaning in our senses, in our experiences, in our legacy. This is what makes life vain. Instead, we should look for purpose and meaning as we angle our lives to maximize the glory of God. Why? Because the glory of God is eternal. And we only live for eternity if we live for His glory. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink, these are the most basic things that we can do, right? If we don't eat, we die. If we don't drink, we die. So whether we do even those really basic things, why should we do them? To keep ourselves alive? To keep ourselves healthy? No. Whether we eat or we drink, we should do it all for the glory, to the glory of God. Even the small things in life, our pursuit, our direction must be the glory of God. Do you eat for the glory of God? Do you drink for the glory of God? Do you plan your diet for the eternal glory of God? Right? So whether you are too strict with your diet or not strict at all, right? Both of those things could be sinful, right? I, I eat to glorify my body, right? Whether it is, whether it is so that we can 
please our palates or we can please the mirror? Do we eat for the glory of God? Do we drink for the glory of God? Or do we do that for our earthly goals? Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do in, we, in work or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. There is no area of our lives that is designed to bring glory to ourselves. Zero. Whether you do, whatever you do, do it for Christ. 1 Peter 4.11 Whoever speaks... As one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So how do we angle our cyclical lives, our mundane existence, to the glory of God in everything we do? We understand that every day we have the opportunity to advance God's eternal purposes in our lives. We don't have days off as Christians. We don't live some days for God and others for self. We are Christians on Sun. We are not Christians on Sunday and secular secularists Monday through Saturdays. First Corinthians six nineteen through twenty. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Everything on this earth is passing except Christ. Christ is eternal. And friends, there is nothing better than to trust Christ and find ourselves united with Him. This is the only way our lives moves from earthly to eternal. Is if we turn to Christ in faith and repentance and say, You have bought me. Teach me now to live for you. Friends, it is the cross of Christ that gives us hope, that gives us purpose. So if you don't know Christ, the message of Ecclesiastes is very plain. Your life is vain and it will amount to nothing in eternity. But if you will turn to Christ, you have a great purpose in this life. And the great news is this. You don't have to buy Christ. He's already bought you. He's already paid for you. You do not have to come to Christ through your sacrifices because Christ's sacrifice is enough to forgive your sins, atone for your life, and purchase you. So friend, live for eternity. Live for Christ. No days, weeks, months, years, seasons. They're all cycles that God has placed in our lives so that we can direct our lives for His glory. Christ enables us to do that. So at the beginning of every day, the most important question you can ask is, what must I do today to bring glory to God? We have no time to waste. We have no time to squander because our time belongs to God and not to ourselves. So let me ask you a few questions to help you ponder on some of these principles as we finish today. Does the glory of God determine how you work? How you study, how you parent. Does the glory of God determine when you wake up, when you go to sleep? Does the glory of God determine how you eat, how you treat your body? Do your hobbies advance the kingdom of God? Do you have a healthy understanding of entertainment? Or do things like video games, social media, 
television cause you to squander the time that God has given you? Are there things you should stop doing in your life? Are there things you should start doing in your life? Friends, life for life itself is vain. Life for life itself is life under the sun. But when we discover that we don't have to live for self, we can live for God. We find ourselves free of vanity. We don't remember, when we remember that Jesus died to break the curse of vanity, the curse that dominates life under the sun, we can move from meaningless earthly experience to a purposeful eternal life. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the days, the hours, the minutes that you have given us. Lord, we recognize that they don't ultimately belong to us. So teach us to count our days. Remind us that we live in a wicked hour. So help us with wisdom. Angle our lives for your glory. Father, help us remember that Christ has purchased us. So living for his glory is the least that we can do. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.